This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Hills of the Dead by Robert E. Howard. It's read by Paul Bomer, and it comes from the collection The Savage Tales of Solomon Cain, available through Tantor.com. The story runs one hour, and we'll be discussing it afterwards. The Hills of the Dead Chapter 1 Voodoo The twigs which no longer flung on the fire broke and crackled. The upleaping flames lighted the countenances of the two men. No longer, voodoo man of the slave coast was very old. His wizened and gnarled frame was stooped and brittle. His face was creased by hundreds of wrinkles. The red firelight glinted on the human finger bones, which composed his necklace. The other was a white man, and his name was Solomon Cain. He was tall and broad-shouldered, clad in black, close garments, the garb of the Puritan. His featherless slouch hat was drawn low over his heavy brows, shadowing his darkly pallid face. His cold, deep eyes brooded in the firelight. You come again, brother, droned the fetish man, speaking in the jargon which passed for a common language of black man and white on the west coast. Many moons burn and die since we make blood palava. You go to the setting sun, but you come back. Aye. Cain's voice was deep and almost ghostly. Yours is a grim land no longer. A red land, barred with the black darkness of horror and the bloody shadows of death. Yet I have returned. No longer stirred the fire, saying nothing. And after a pause, Cain continued, Yonder in the unknown vastness. His long finger stabbed at the black, silent jungle which brooded beyond the firelight. Yonder lie mystery and adventure and nameless terror. Once I dared the jungle. Once she nearly claimed my bones. Something entered into my blood, something stole into my soul like a whisper of unnamed sin. The jungle, dark and brooding, over leagues of the blue salt sea she has drawn me, and with the dawn I go to seek the heart of her. Mayhap I shall find curious adventure, mayhap my doom awaits me, but better death than the ceaseless and everlasting urge, the fire that has burned my veins with bitter longing. Shikal, muttered Nalanga. At night, she coil like serpent about my hut and whisper strange things to me. Aya, the jungle call. We be blood brothers, you and I. Me, Nalonga, mighty worker of nameless magic, you, 
Go to the jungle as all men go who hear her call. Maybe you live, may like you die. You believe in my fetish work? I understand it not, said Cain grimly. But I have seen you send your soul forth from your body to animate a lifeless corpse. Aye, me no longer priest of the black god. Now watch, I make magic. Cain gazed at the black man who bent over the fire, making even motions with his hands and mumbling incantations. Cain watched, and he seemed to grow sleepy. A mist wavered in front of him, through which he saw dimly the form of Nalonga etched black against the flames. Then all faded out. Cain woke with a start, hand shooting to the pistol in his belt. Nalonga grinned at him across the flame, and there was a scent of early dawn in the air. The fetish man held a long stave of curious black wood in his hands. This stave was carved in a strange manner, and one end tapered to a sharp point. This voodoo staff, said Nalonga, putting it in the Englishman's hand. Where your guns and long knife fail, this save you. When you want me, lay this on your breast, fold your hands on it, and sleep. I come to you in your dreams. Cain weighed the thing in his hand, highly suspicious of witchcraft. It was not heavy, but seemed hard as iron. A good weapon, at least, he decided. Dawn was just beginning to steal over the jungle and the river. Chapter 2 Red Eyes Solomon Cain shifted his musket from his shoulder and let the stalk fall to the earth. Silence lay about him like a fog. Cain's lined face and tattered garments showed the effect of long bush travel. He looked about him. Some distance behind him loomed the green, rank jungle, thinning out to low shrubs, stunted trees, and tall grass. Some distance in front of him rose the first of a chain of bare, somber hills, littered with boulders, shimmering in the merciless heat of the sun. Between the hills and the jungle lay a broad expanse of rough, uneven grasslands, dotted here and there by clumps of thorn trees. An utter silence hung over the country. The only sign of life was a few vultures flapping heavily across the distant hills. For the last few days, Cain had noticed the increasing number of these unsavory birds. The sun was rocking westward, but its heat was in no way abated. Trailing his musket, he started forward slowly. He had no objective in view. This was all unknown country, and one direction was as good as another. Many weeks ago he had plunged into the jungle with the assurance 
born of courage and ignorance. Having by some miracle survived the first few weeks, he was becoming hard and toughened, able to hold his own with any of the grim denizens of the fastness he dared. As he progressed, he noted an occasional lion spore, but there seemed to be no animals in the grasslands, none that left tracks, at any rate. Vultures sat like black, brooding images in some of the stunted trees, and suddenly he saw an activity among them some distance beyond. Several of the dusky birds circled about a clump of high grass, dipping, then rising again. Some beast of prey was defending his kill against them, Cain decided, and wondered at the lack of snarling and roaring which usually accompanied such scenes. His curiosity was roused, and he turned his steps in that direction. At last, pushing through the grass which rose about his shoulders, he saw, as through a corridor walled with the rank waving blades, a ghastly sight. The corpse of a black man lay face down, and as the Englishman looked, a great dark snake rose and slid away into the grass, moving so quickly that Cain was unable to decide its nature. But it had a weird, human-like suggestion about it. Cain stood over the body, noting that while the limbs lay awry as if broken, the flesh was not torn as a lion or leopard would have torn it. He glanced up at the whirling vultures and was amazed to see several of them skimming along close to the earth, following a waving of the grass which marked the flight of the thing which had presumably slain the black man. Cain wondered what thing the carrion birds which eat only the dead were hunting through the grasslands. But Africa is full of never-explained mysteries. Cain shrugged his shoulders and lifted his musket again, Adventures he had had plenty since he parted from Nalonga some moons ago, but still that nameless paranoid urge had driven him on and on, deeper and deeper, into those trackless ways. Cain could not have analyzed this call. He would have attributed it to Satan, who lures men to their destruction. But it was but the restless, turbulent spirit of the adventurer, the wanderer, the same urge which sends the gypsy caravans about the world, which drove the Viking galleys over the unknown seas, and which guides the flights of the wild geese. Cain sighed. Here in this barren land seem neither food nor water, but he had wearied unto death of the dank, rank venom of the thick jungle. Even a wilderness of bare hills was preferable, for a time at least. He glanced at them, where they lay brooding in the sun, and started forward again. He held Nalonga's fetish stave in his hand, and though his conscience still troubled him for keeping a thing so apparently diabolic in nature, he had never been able to bring himself to throw it away. Now, as he went toward the hills, a sudden commotion broke out in the tall grass in front of him, which was, in places, taller than a man. A thin, high-pitched scream sounded, and on its heels an earth-shaking roar, 
The grass parted, and a slim figure came flying toward him like a wisp of straw blown on the wind, a brown-skinned girl clad only in a skirt-like garment. Behind her, some yards away but gaining swiftly, came a huge lion. The girl fell at Cain's feet with a wail and a sob and lay clutching at his ankles. The Englishman dropped the voodoo stave, raised his musket to his shoulder, and sighted coolly at the ferocious feline face which neared him every instant. Crash! The girl screamed once and slumped on her face. The huge cat leaped high and wildly to fall and lie motionless. Cain reloaded hastily before he spared a glance at the form at his feet. The girl lay as still as the lion he had just slain, but a quick examination showed that she had only fainted. He bathed her face with water from his canteen, and presently she opened her eyes and sat up. Fear flooded her face as she looked at her rescuer, and she made to rise. Cain held out a restraining hand, and she cowered down, trembling. The roar of his heavy musket was enough to frighten any native who had never before seen a white man, Cain reflected. The girl was a much higher type than the thick-lipped, bestial West Coast Negroes to whom Cain had been used. She was slim and finely formed, of a deep brown hue rather than ebony. Her nose was straight and thin-bridged. Her lips were not too thick. Somewhere in her blood there was a strong Berber strain. Cain spoke to her in a river dialect, a simple language he had learned during his wandering, and she replied haltingly. The inland tribes traded slaves and ivory to the river people and were familiar with their jargon. My village is there. She answered Cain's question, pointing to the southern jungle with a slim, rounded arm. My name is Zana. My mother whipped me for breaking a cooking kettle, and I ran away because I was angry. I am afraid. Let me go back to my mother. You may go, said Cain, but I will take you, child. Suppose another lion came along. You were very foolish to run away. She whimpered a little. Are you not a god? No, Zana. I am only a man, though the color of my skin is not as yours. Lead me now to your village. She rose hesitantly, eyeing him apprehensively through the wild tangle of her hair. To Cain, she seemed like some frightened young animal. She led the way, and Cain followed. She indicated that her village lay to the southeast, and their route brought them nearer to the hills. The sun began to sink, and the roaring of lions reverberated over the grasslands. Cain glanced at the western sky. This open country was no place in which to be caught by night. He glanced toward the hills and saw that they were within a few hundred yards of the nearest. He saw what seemed to be a cave. Zana, 
he said haltingly. We can never reach your village before nightfall, and if we bide here the lions will take us. Yonder is a cavern where we may spend the night. She shrank and trembled. Not in the hills, master, she whimpered. Better the lions. Nonsense. His tone was impatient. He had had enough of native superstition. We will spend the night in yonder cave. She argued no further, but followed him. They went up a short slope and stood at the mouth of the cavern, a small affair, with sides of solid rock and a floor of deep sand. Gather some dry grass, Zana, commanded Cain, standing his musket against the wall of the mouth of the cave. But go not far away, and listen for lions. I will build here a fire which shall keep us safe from beasts tonight. Bring some grass and any twigs you may find, like a good child, and we will sup. I have dried meat in my pouch and water also. She gave him a strange, long glance, then turned away without a word. Cain tore up grass near at hand, noting how it was seared and crisp from the sun, and heaping it up, struck flint and steel. Flame leaped up and devoured the heap in an instant. He was wondering how he could gather enough grass to keep a fire going all night, when he was aware that he had visitors. Cain was used to grotesque sights, but at first glance he started, and a slight coldness traveled down his spine. Two black men stood before him in silence. They were tall and gaunt, and entirely naked. Their skins were a dusty black, tinged with a gray, ashy hue as of death. Their faces were different from any negroes he had seen. The brows were high and narrow, the noses huge and snout-like, the eyes were inhumanly large and inhumanly red. As the two stood there, it seemed to Cain that only their burning eyes lived. He spoke to them, but they did not answer. He invited them to eat with a motion of his hand, and they silently squatted down near the cave mouth as far from the dying embers of the fire as they could get. Cain turned to his pouch and began taking out the strips of dried meat which he carried. Once he glanced at his silent guests, it seemed to him that they were watching the glowing ashes of his fire rather than him. The sun was about to sink behind the western horizon, a red, fierce glow spread over the grasslands, so that all seemed like a waving sea of blood. Cain knelt over his pouch, and glancing up, saw Zunna come around the shoulder of the hill with her arms full of grass and dry branches. As he looked, her eyes flared wide, the branches dropped from her arms, and her scream knifed the silence, fraught with terrible warning. Cain whirled on his knee. Two great black forms loomed over him as he came up with the lithe motion of a springing leopard. The fetish stave was in his hand, and he drove it through the body of the nearest foe with a force which sent its sharp point out 
between the negro's shoulders. Then the long, lean arms of the other locked about him, and white man and black man went down together. The talon-like nails of the black were tearing at his face, the hideous red eyes staring into his with a terrible threat, as Cain writhed about and, fending off the clawing hands with one arm, drew a pistol. He pressed the muzzle close against the black's side and pulled the trigger. At the muffled report, the negro's body jerked to the concussion of the bullet, but the thick lips merely gaped in a horrid grin. One long arm slid under Cain's shoulders, the other hand gripped his hair. The Englishman felt his head being forced back irresistibly. He clutched at the other's wrist with both hands, but the flesh under his frantic fingers was as hard as wood. Cain's brain was reeling, his neck seemed ready to break with a little more pressure. He threw his body backward with one volcanic effort, breaking the deathly hold. The black was on him, and the talons were clutching again. Cain found and raised the empty pistol, and he felt the black man's skull cave in like a shell as he brought down the long barrel with all his strength. And once again, the writhing lips parted, fearful mockery. And now, a near panic clutched Cain. What sort of man was this, who still menaced his life with tearing fingers after having been shot and mortally bludgeoned? No man, surely, but one of the sons of Satan. At the thought, Cain wrenched and heaved explosively, and the close-locked combatants tumbled across the earth to come to a rest at the smoldering ashes before the cave mouth. Cain barely felt the heat, but the mouth of his foe gaped, this time in seeming agony. The frightful fingers loosened their hold, and Cain sprang clear. The black man with his shattered skull was rising on one hand and one knee when Cain struck, returning to the attack as a gaunt wolf returns to a wounded bison. From the side he leaped, landing full on the black giant's back, his steely arm seeking and finding a deadly wrestling hold. And as they went to the earth together, he broke the negro's neck so that the hideous dead face looked back over one shoulder. The black man lay still, but to Cain it seemed that he was not dead even then, for the red eyes still burned with their grisly light. The Englishman turned to see the girl crouching against the cave wall. He looked for his stave. It lay in the heap of dust, among which were a few moldering bones. He stared, his brain reeling. Then with one stride he caught up the voodoo staff and turned to the fallen negro. His face set in grim lines as he raised it. Then he drove it through the black breast, and before his eyes the giant body crumbled, dissolving to dust as he watched horror-struck, even as had crumbled he through whom Cain had first thrust the stave. Chapter 3 Dream Magic Great God! whispered Cain. 
These men were dead. Vampires. This is Satan's handiwork manifested. Zana crawled to his knees and hung there. These be walking dead men, master, she whimpered. I should have warned you. Why did they not leap on my back when they first came? Asked he. They feared the fire. They were waiting for the embers to die entirely. Whence came they? From the hills. Hundreds of their kind swarm among the boulders and caverns of these hills, and they live on human life. For a man they will slay, devouring his ghost as it leaves his quivering body. Aye, they are suckers of souls. Master, among the greater of these hills there is a silent city of stone, and in the old times, in the days of my ancestors, these people lived there. They were human, but they were not as we, for they have ruled this land for ages and ages. The ancestors of my people made war on them and slew many, and their magicians made all the dead men as these were. At last, all died, and for ages they have preyed on the tribes of the jungle, stalking down from the hills at midnight and at sunset to haunt the jungle ways and slay and slay. Men and beasts flee them, and only fire will destroy them. Here is that which will destroy them, said Cain grimly, raising the voodoo stave. Black magic must fight black magic and I know not what spell no longer put here on, but— You are a god, said Zana decidedly. No man could overcome two of the walking dead men. Master, can you not lift this curse from my tribe? There is nowhere for us to flee, and the monsters slay us at will, catching wayfarers outside the village wall. Death is on this land, and we die helpless. Deep in Cain stirred the spirit of the crusader, the fire of the zealot, the fanatic who devotes his life to battling the powers of darkness. Let us eat, said he. Then we will build a great fire at the cave mouth. The fire which keeps away beasts shall also keep away fiends. Later, Cain sat just inside the cave, Chin rested on clenched fist, eyes gazing unseeingly into the fire. Behind, in the shadows, Zana watched him. Awed. God of hosts, Cain muttered. Grant me aid. My hand it is which must lift the ancient curse from this dark land. How am I to fight these dead fiends? who yield not to mortal weapons. Fire will destroy them. A broken neck renders them helpless. The voodoo stave thrust through them crumbles them to dust. But of what avail? How may I prevail against the hundreds who haunt these hills, and to whom human life essence is life? Have not, as Zunna says, Warriors come against them in the past, only to find them fled to their high-walled city where no man can come against them.
The night wore on. Zana slept, her cheek pillowed in her round, girlish arm. The roaring of the lions shook the hills, and still Cain sat and gazed broodingly into the fire. Outside, the night was alive with whispers and rustlings and stealthily soft footfalls. And at times, Cain, glancing up from his meditations, seemed to catch the gleam of great red eyes beyond the flickering light of the fire. Grey dawn was stealing over the grasslands when Cain shook Zana into wakefulness. God have mercy on my soul for delving in barbaric magic, said he. But demonry must be fought with demonry, mayhap. Tend ye the fire and awake me, if aught untoward occur. Cain lay down on his back, on the sand floor, and laid the voodoo staff on his breast, folding his hands upon it. He fell asleep instantly, and sleeping, he dreamed. To his slumbering self it seemed that he walked through a thick fog, and in this fog he met Nalonga, true to life. Nalonga spoke, and the words were clear and vivid, impressing themselves on his consciousness so deeply as to span the gap between sleeping and waking. Send this girl to her village soon after sunup, when the lions have gone to their lairs, said Nalonga, and bid her bring her lover to you at this cave. There make him lie down as if to slumber, holding the voodoo stave. The dream faded, and Cain awoke suddenly, wondering. How strange and vivid had been the vision, and how strange to hear Nalonga talking in English without the jargon. Cain shrugged his shoulders. He knew that Nalonga claimed to possess the power of sending his spirit through space, and he himself had seen the voodoo man animate a dead man's body. Still, Zama, said Cain, giving the problem up. I will go with you as far as the edge of the jungle, and you must go on to your village and return here to this cave with your lover. Cran? she asked naively. Whatever his name is, eat, and we will go. Again the sun slanted toward the west. Cain sat in the cave, waiting. He had seen the girl safely to the place where the jungle thinned to the grasslands, and though his conscience stung him at the thought of the dangers which might confront her, he sent her on alone, and returned to the cave. He sat now, wondering if he would not be damned to everlasting flames for tinkering with the magic of a black sorcerer, blood brother or not. Light footfalls sounded, and as Cain reached for his musket, Zana entered, accompanied by a tall, splendidly proportioned youth, whose brown skin showed that he was of the same race as the girl. His soft, dreamy eyes were fixed on Cain, in a sort of awesome worship. Evidently the girl had not minimized the white god's glory in her telling. He bade the youth lie down as he directed, and placed the voodoo stave in his hands. Zana crouched 
at one side, wide-eyed. Kane stepped back, half ashamed of this mummery, and wondering what, if anything, would come of it. Then, to his horror, the youth gave one gasp and stiffened. Zana screamed, bounding erect. You have killed Cran! she shrieked, flying at the Englishman who stood struck speechless. Then she halted suddenly, wavered, drew a hand languidly across her brow. She slid down to lie with her arms about the motionless body of her lover. And this body moved suddenly, made aimless motions with hands and feet, then sat up, disengaging itself from the clinging arms of the still senseless girl. Cran looked up at Cain and grinned, a sly, knowing grin, which seemed out of place on his face somehow. Cain started. Those soft eyes had changed in expression and were now hard and glittering and snaky. Nalonga's eyes. Ay, ah, said Cran in a grotesquely familiar voice. Blood brother. You got no greeting for Nalonga? Cain was silent. His flesh crawled in spite of himself. Cran rose and stretched his arms in an unfamiliar sort of way, as if his limbs were new to him. He slapped his breast approvingly. Minalanga, said he in the old boastful manner. Mighty Juju man, blood brother, not you know me, eh? You are Satan, said Cain sincerely. Are you Cran or are you Nalonga? Me Nalanga, assured the other. My body sleep in Juju hut on coast many treks from here. I borrow Cran's body for while. My ghost travel ten days march in one breath, twenty days march in same time. My ghost go out from my body and drive out Cran's. And Cran is dead? No, he no dead. I send his ghost to Shadowland for a while. Send the girl's ghost, too, to keep him company. Bimbe come back. This is the work of the devil, said Cain frankly. But I have seen you do even fouler magic. Shall I call you Nalonga or Cran? Cran, cab! Me Nalonga. Bodies like clothes. Me no longer in here now. He wrapped his breast. Bimbe Cran live along here. Then he be Cran and I be no longer, same like before. Cran no live along now. No longer live along this one fellow body. Blood brother, I am no longer. Kay nodded. This was in truth a land of horror and enchantment. Anything was possible even that the thin voice of Nalonga should speak to him from the great chest of Cran, and the snaky eyes of Nalonga should blink at him from the handsome young face of Cran. This land I know long time, said Nalonga, getting down to business. Mighty juju, these dead people. No, no need to waste one fellow time. I know, I talk to you in sleep. My blood brother want to kill out these dead black fellows, eh? 
is a thing opposed to nature, said Cain somberly. They are known in my land as vampires. I never expected to come upon a whole nation of them. Chapter 4 The Silent City Now we find this stone city, said Nalonga. Yes? Why not send your ghost out to kill these vampires? Cain asked idly. Ghost got to have one fellow body to work in, Nalonga answered. Sleep now. Tomorrow we start. The sun had set. The fire glowed and flickered in the cave mouth. Cain glanced at the still form of the girl who lay where she had fallen and prepared himself for slumber. Awake me at midnight, he admonished, and I will watch from then till dawn. But when Nalonga finally shook his arm, Cain awoke to see the first light of dawn reddening the land. Time we start, said the fetish man. But the girl, are you sure she lives? She live, blood brother. Then in God's name we cannot leave her here at the mercy of any prowling fiend who might chance upon her, or some lion might. No lion calm. Vampire scent still linger, mixed with man scent. One fellow lion he no like man scent, and he fear the walking dead man, no beast calm, and... Lifting the voodoo stave and laying it across the cave entrance... No dead man come now. Cain watched him somberly and without enthusiasm. How will that rod safeguard her? That mighty juju, said Nalonga. You see how one fellow vampire go along dust alongside that stave? No vampire dare touch or come near it. I give it to you because outside Vampire Hills, one fellow man sometimes meet a corpse walking in jungle when shadows be black. Not all walking dead men be here, and all must suck life from men. If not, they rot like dead wood. Then make many of these rods and arm the people with them. No can do. Nalonga's skull shook violently. That juju rod be mighty magic, old, old. No man live today can tell how old that fellow juju stave be. I make my blood brother sleep and do magic with it to guard him. That time we make palaver in coast village. Today we scout and run, no need it. Leave it here to guard girl. Cain shrugged his shoulders and followed the fetish man, after glancing back at the still shape which lay in the cave. He would never have agreed to leave her so casually had he not believed in his heart that she was dead. He had touched her, and her flesh was cold. They went up among the barren hills as the sun was rising. Higher they climbed, up steep clay slopes, winding their way through ravines and between great boulders. The hills were honeycombed with dark, forbidding caves, and these they passed warily, and Cain's flesh crawled as he thought of the grisly occupants therein, for Nalonga said, Them vampires! He sleep in caves most all day till sunset. Them caves, 
he be full of one fellow dead man. The sun rose higher, baking down on the bare slopes with an intolerable heat. Silence brooded like an evil monster over the land. They had seen nothing, but Cain could have sworn at times that a black shadow drifted behind a boulder at their approach. Them vampires, they stay hid in daytime, said Nolonga with a low laugh. They be afraid of one fellow Valcha. No fool Valcha. He know death when he see it. He pounce on one fellow dead man and tear and eat if he be lying or walking. A strong shudder shook his companion. Great God! Cain cried, striking his thigh with his hat. Is there no end to horror in this hideous land? Truly this land is dedicated to the powers of darkness. Cain's eyes burned with a dangerous light. The terrible heat, the solitude, and the knowledge of the horrors lurking on either hand were shaking even his steely nerves. Keep on one fellow hat, Bladbrala, admonished Nalonga with a low gurgle of amusement. That fellow son, he knock you dead. Suppose you no look out. Cain lifted the musket he had insisted on bringing and made no reply. They mounted an eminence at last and looked down on a sort of plateau. And in the center of this plateau was a silent city of gray and crumbling stone. Cain was smitten by a sense of incredible age as he looked. The walls and houses were of great stone blocks, yet they were falling into ruin. Grass grew on the plateau and high in the streets of that dead city. Cain saw no movement among the ruins. That is their city. Why do they choose to sleep in caves? Maybe so one fellow stone fall on them from roof and crash. Them stone huts but fall down by and by. Maybe so they no like to stay together. Maybe so they eat each other too. Silence, whispered Cain. How it hangs over all. Them vampires no talk nor yell. They dead. They sleep in caves, wander at sunset and at night. Maybe so them black fellow bush tribes come with spears. Them vampires go to stone kraal and fight behind walls. Cain nodded. The crumbling walls which surrounded that dead city were still high and solid enough to resist the attack of spearmen, especially when defended by these snout-nosed fiends. Blood brother, said Nalonga solemnly. I have mighty magic thought. Be silent a little while. Cain seated himself on a boulder and gazed broodingly at the bare crags and slopes which surrounded them. Far away to the south he saw the leafy green ocean that was the jungle. Distance lent a certain enchantment to the scene. Closer at hand loomed the dark blotches that were the mouths of the caves of horror. Nalonga was squatting, tracing some strange pattern in the clay with a dagger point. Cain watched him, thinking how easily they might fall victim to the vampires if even three or four of the fiends should come out of their caverns. And even as he thought it, 
a black and horrific shadow fell across the crouching fetish man. Cain acted without conscious thought. He shot from the boulder where he sat like a stone hurled from a catapult, and his musket stock shattered the face of the hideous black thing who had stolen upon them. Back and back Cain drove his inhuman foe, staggering, never giving him time to halt or launch an offensive, battering him with the onslaught of a frenzied tiger. At the very edge of the cliff, the vampire wavered, then pitched back over to fall for a hundred feet and lie writhing on the rocks of the plateau below. Nalonga was on his feet, pointing. The hills were giving up their dead. Out of the caves they were swarming, the terrible black silent shapes. Up the slopes they came charging, and over the boulders they came clambering, and their red eyes were all turned toward the two humans who stood above the silent city. The caves belched them forth in an unholy judgment day. Nalonga pointed to a crag some distance away, and with a shout started running fleetly toward it. Cain followed. From behind boulders, black, taloned hands clawed at them, tearing their garments. They raced past caves, and mummied monsters came lurching out of the dark, gibbering silently to join in the pursuit. The dead hands were close at their back when they scrambled up the last slope and stood on a ledge which was the top of the crag. The fiends halted silently a moment, then came clambering after them. Cain clubbed his musket and smashed down into the red-eyed faces, knocking aside the up-leaping hands. They surged up like a black wave. He swung his musket in a silent fury that matched theirs. The black wave broke and wavered back, came on again. He could not kill them. These words beat on his brain like a sledge on an anvil as he shattered wood-like flesh and dead bone with his smashing swings. He knocked them down, hurled them back, but they rose and came on again. This could not last. What in God's name was Nalonga doing? Cain spared one swift, tortured glance over his shoulder. The fetish man stood on the highest part of the ledge, head thrown back, arms lifted, as if in invocation. Cain's vision blurred to the sweep of hideous black faces with red, staring eyes. Those in front were horrible to see now, for their skulls were shattered, their faces caved in, and their limbs broken. But still they came on, and those behind reached across their shoulders to clutch at the man who defied them. Cain was red, but the blood was all his. From the long withered veins of those monsters no single drop of warm red blood trickled. Suddenly, from behind him came a long, piercing wail. Nolonga! Over the crash of the flying musket stock and the shattering of bones it sounded high and clear, the only voice lifted in that hideous fight. The black wave washed about Cain's feet, dragging him down. 
Keen talons tore at him, flaccid lips sucked at his wounds. He reeled up again, disheveled and bloody, clearing a space with a shattering sweep of his splintered musket. Then they closed in again, and he went down. This is the end, he thought. But even at that instant the press slackened, and the sky was suddenly filled with the beat of great wings. Then he was free, and staggered up, blindly and dizzily, ready to renew the strife. He halted, frozen. Down the slope, the black horde was fleeing, and over their heads and close at their shoulders flew huge vultures, tearing and rending avidly, sinking their beaks in the dead black flesh, devouring the vampires as they fled. Cain laughed, almost insanely. Defy man and God, but you may not deceive the vultures, sons of Satan. They know whether a man be alive or dead. Nolonga stood like a prophet on the pinnacle, and the great black birds soared and wheeled about him. His arms still waved, and his voice still wailed out across the hills. Along the skylines they came, hordes on endless hordes, vultures, 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 come to the feast so long denied them. They blackened the sky with their numbers, blotted out the sun. A strange darkness fell on the land. They settled in long dusky lines, diving into the caverns with a whir of wings and a clash of beaks. Their talons tore at the black horrors which these caves disgorged. Now, all the vampires were fleeing to their city. The vengeance held back for ages had come down on them, and their last hope was the heavy walls which had kept back the desperate human foes. Under those crumbling roofs they might find shelter. And Nalonga watched them stream into the city, and he laughed until the crags re-echoed. Now all were in, and the birds settled like a cloud over the doomed city, perching in solid rows along the walls, sharpening their beaks and claws on the towers. And Nalonga struck flint and steel to a bundle of dry leaves he had brought with him. The bundle leaped into instant flame, and he straightened and flung the blazing thing far out over the cliffs. It fell like a meteor to the plateau beneath, showering sparks. The tall grass of the plateau leaped aflame. From the silent city beneath them, fear flowed in unseen waves, like a white fog. Cain smiled grimly. The grass is sear and brittle from the drought, he said. There has been even less rain than usual this season. It will burn swiftly. Like a crimson serpent, the fire ran through the high dead grass. It spread and it spread, and Cain, standing high above, yet felt the fearful intensity of the hundreds of red eyes which watched from the stone city. Now the scarlet snake had reached the walls and was rearing as if to coil and writhe over them.
The vultures rose on heavily flapping wings and soared reluctantly. A vagrant gust of wind whipped the blaze about and drove it in a long red sheet around the wall. Now the city was hemmed in on all sides by a solid barricade of flame. The roar came up to the two men on the high crag. Sparks flew across the wall, lighting in the high grass in the streets. A score of flames leaped up and grew with terrifying speed. A veil of red cloaked streets and buildings, and through this crimson whirling mist, Cain and Nalonga saw hundreds of black shapes scamper and writhe, to vanish suddenly in red bursts of flame. There rose an intolerable scent of decayed flesh, burning. Cain gazed, awed. This was truly a hell on earth. As in a nightmare he looked into the roaring red cauldron where black insects fought against their doom, and perished. The flames leaped a hundred feet in the air, and suddenly, above their roar sounded one bestial, inhuman scream like a shriek from across nameless gulfs of cosmic space as one vampire, dying, broke the chains of silence which had held him for untold centuries. High and haunting it rose, the death cry of a vanishing race. Then the flames dropped suddenly. The conflagration had been a typical grass fire, short and fierce. Now the plateau showed a blackened expanse, and the city a charred and smoking mass of crumbling stone. Not one corpse lay in view, not even a charred bone. Above all whirled the dark swarms of the vultures, but they too were beginning to scatter. Cain gazed hungrily at the clean blue sky. Like a strong sea wind, clearing a fog of horror was the sight to him. From somewhere sounded the faint and far-off roaring of a distant lion. The vultures were flapping away in black, straggling lines. Chapter 5 Palaver Set Cain sat in the mouth of the cave where Zana lay, submitting to the fetish man's bandaging. The Puritan's garments hung in tatters about his frame. His limbs and breast were deeply gashed and darkly bruised. But he had had no mortal wound in that deathly fight on the cliff. Mighty men we be, declared Nalonga with deep approval. Vampire city be silent now, sure enough. No walking dead man live along these hills. I do not understand, said Cain, resting chin on hand. Tell me, Nalonga, how have you done these things? How talked you with me in my dreams? How came you into the body of Cran, and how summoned you the vultures? My blood, brother, said Nalonga, discarding his pride in his pigeon English, to drop into the river language understood by Cain. 
I am so old that you would call me a liar if I told you my age. All my life I have worked magic, sitting first at the feet of mighty juju men of the south and the east. Then I was a slave to the Bakra, the white man, and learned more. My brother, shall I span all these years in a moment and make you understand with a word what has taken me so long to learn? I could not even make you understand how these vampires have kept their bodies from decay by drinking the lives of men. I sleep, and my spirit goes out over the jungle and the rivers to talk with the sleeping spirits of my friends. There is a mighty magic on the voodoo staff I gave you, a magic out of the old land which draws my ghost to it as a white man's magnet draws metal. Cain listened, unspeaking, seeing for the first time in Nalonga's glittering eyes something stronger and deeper than the avid gleam of the worker in black magic. To Cain, it seemed almost as if he looked into the far-seeing and mystic eyes of a prophet of old. I spoke to you in dreams, Nalonga went on, and I made a deep sleep come over the souls of Kran and of Zana, and removed them to a far dim land whence they shall soon return, unremembering. All things bow to magic, blood brother, and beasts and birds obey the master words. I worked strong voodoo, vulture magic, and the flying people of the air gathered at my call. These things I know and am a part of, but how shall I tell you of them? Blood brother, you are a mighty warrior, and in the ways of magic you are as a little child lost, and what has taken me long dark years to know, I may not divulge to you so you would understand. My friend, you think only of bad spirits, but were my magic always bad, should I not take this fine young body in place of my old wrinkled one? and keep it, but Cran shall have his body back safely. Keep the voodoo staff, blood brother. It has mighty power against all sorcerers and serpents and evil things. Now I return to the village on the coast where my true body sleeps. And what of you, my blood brother? Cain pointed silently, eastward. The call grows no weaker. I go. Nolonga nodded, held out his hand. Cain grasped it. The mystical expression had gone from the dusky face, and the eyes twinkled snakily, with a sort of reptilian mirth. Me go now, blood brother, said the fetish man, returning to his beloved jargon, of which knowledge he was prouder than all his conjuring tricks. You take care. That one fellow jungle, she pluck your bones yet. Remember that voodoo stave, brother. Ay-ya! Palava set!
he fell back on the sand, and Cain saw the keen, sly expression of Nalonga fading from the face of Cran. His flesh crawled again. Somewhere back on the slave coast, the body of Nalonga, withered and wrinkled, was stirring in the juju hut, was rising as if from a deep sleep. Cain shuddered. Cran sat up, yawned, stretched, and smiled. Beside him, the girl Zana rose, rubbing her eyes. Master, said Cran, apologetically, we must have slumbered. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim Moon. I'm Matthew Sanborn-Smith. I'm Brian Alexander. And we're going to be talking about The Hills of the Dead, the audiobook we all just heard, uh, by Robert E. Howard. And I, I think this is the second to last story in the chronology, is that right? Or something like that? Uh, I think so. It is for one of the fairly later ones. Not that there's many Solomon Kane stories, regrettably. But. It's like a, a good hand, it was a good handful, but there was two stories I was thinking about when I was thinking about doing a Solomon Kane episode and there was this one and the other one I, I i thought about red shadows a little bit too i guess but the other one is wings in the night and i was thinking wings in the night is basically the same story as this except it's just it doesn't have no longer which i think is really um makes a difference between it being a very interesting story versus a really cool story mm. yeah um do you guys do you remember wings in the night at all was that the one with the harpies yeah, the what mm. calls harpies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that it was pretty cool. He's defending a village against a horde of beasts instead of vampires. They're they're uh, winged winged men. Yeah, they didn't they tie in um, Jason somehow from the Argonauts. Yeah, I think that's what he is saying. This is the the harpies of legend, etc. Which is cool. Yeah, that is cool. And I, I know there's another story, I forget which one, where um, they explain the history of the staff that he gets in this story, The Hills of Yeah, Mind. it's not explained in this story at all, but um, they're very, online, they're very strident about, you know, it has this history and it looks like this. And uh, But in the story here, we just, the only thing that we get a description of is, is very, it's, it's got a point and it's heavy. Um, and obviously it's full of juju or voodoo or whatever or fetishes <laughs> <laughs> of some kind yeah yeah um yes and i think it's also cool that this story does have such a heavy use of this staff of solomon or the what are the juju stick whatever we want to call it because it's a one of the cases where you actually have a magical item that one of conan's characters uses I, as far as i can tell this is the only sort of you know, sort of D&D style, you know, staff of killing plus seven that you would have to find <laughs> in a Conan or Solomon Kaner. I, I don't think there's any other, like, Cull doesn't have a magic axe or anything, right? No. No, no. In one of those other stories, it does say something like uh, it was older than the Earth. Um, I think it it, in most of the adaptations, it shows it as having a cat head on the end. Mm. 
And I think it says in this story that it's carved with many uh, symbols and words or some something like that. So it's it's got some sort of weighty power to it. Yeah, I've got the um, the ebook the ebook version of that Wandering Star collection mm-hmm. with uh, is it Gary Gianni who's the artist? Yeah, He's I think you're right. A brilliant artist, and uh, he his staff has a cat head on it. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know why, but you know, yeah, I guess you well, could do almost anything. The the comic book adaptations, I I think one of them at least has a, a cat head. They, they all look a little bit different. Um. But in this story, it's used kind of like a traditional vampire slaying steak, right? Yeah, yeah. But it also just it's it's uh, its presence apparently can keep them away. Yeah. So uh, there, there's a number of things that in listening to the story, rereading the story over the and seeing the different adaptations. Uh, there are a number of questions I have about like what's going. Like I was thinking, actually, it's fairly well plotted. Usually, when I I read, you know, Robert E. Howard stuff, he's more about the getting carried away with the with the cool stuff than he is the well setting things up in advance. <laughs> and it is pretty well set up in advance. There's a couple of uh, you know he mentions the grasses early on. He he gives us the vultures early on so that we get the mm. payoff later which I, I was kind of impressed that he did that because usually he's, he's <laughs> let's get going here. Um, but uh, I mean, when he, they get to the cave um, and then he says in the, I guess in the morning after those vampires are slayed, he goes to sleep and he says, wakes up and says, Hey girl, go, go, go to your village, go get your lover. And I was, oh, well, first of all, how does he know she has a lover? Um, what if she comes back with a girl instead of a, a guy with that? Why didn't she, you know, so maybe no longer knows what's going on. Right. But he just sent her back through all those uh, plains and hills full of lions. Didn't he say that we had to, you know, walk very carefully on the way? This makes no sense. I mean, well, the lions come out at night, aren't they? Many nocturnal or twilight hunters and in the day they tend to sleep. It could be true. I don't know. I know lions actually, as ferocious as they are, do an awful lot of sleeping. It's about twenty-two hours a day. Being wow. being cats, yeah, mm. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, they may they may be nocturnal or or do their work in the in the late afternoon or something. That makes sense. Because as they're heading back to the village, it is nightfall, and the the lions are on the prowl, which is why they shelter in the cave. Mm-hmm. So I think the inference is during the daytime she should be okay. Slugs right. doesn't go into the deep bush or go and poke on with a stick. No, don't forget though. Howard gives a he has an escape hatch for this. He says, "But Africa is full of never explained mysteries." Yes, <laughs> yes, that's the escape for everything. I mean, there's just, it's the it's line. You know, Cain wondered what thing the carrion birds, which eat only the dead, were hunting through the grasslands, but. Africa is full of never explained mysteries, so <laughs> it's kind of a duty-free well, yeah. zone. You know? I think, though, that, that that is also good plotting, because I think we're supposed to think that, that there's a uh, a vampire getting eaten by a vulture there. Right. Um, now, there's a very, very, very curious... Uh, may, maybe somebody wants to recap the story, um, just so I don't you know, make, make a 
mental list of notes and that be the podcast. <laughs> Matt, <laughs> Matt, oh, geez, why did you pick me? Were, yeah, well, you specifically said I hoped you'd pick this story. Yeah, yeah, I, I do like this story, but I'm I'm terrible at recapping stories. Okay, well, well, why was it that you thought this was the one I would I should pick? Well, it was the ending. It was you know to this day it's the coolest disposal of vampires I've ever seen, and this was cool. this was made up in the 1930s. You know, nobody's come up yeah. with anything better. It's uh, it reminded me a lot of I Am Legend, which I'm I'm betting Matheson read this story. He was he was uh, would have been alive back then, I think, right? Well, oh, yeah, my. yeah. Oh, you've it, certainly it, come across it because Weird Tales was reprinting Howard and Lovecraft and Ashton Smith hmm. stories quite late on, long after all their likely. deaths. And it it it's interesting because other than like a more recent you know underworld movie or whatever those movies they have with Kate Beckinsale or whoever it is you know the modern vampires versus werewolves sort of epic movies um, there haven't there isn't really a society of vampires uh, or a nation of vampires as it's called in this story um, done as a story that is in this sort of outbreak sort of way, you know, sort of the preying on everybody sort of way. It feels a, a little more I Am Legendy than... Mm-hmm. than. Uh, there's this one um, Hammer movie, which I always suspect was influenced by this story, um, Kiss of the Vampire. Uh, and in that, it's your typical setup. There's your bright young things in unspecified period times who are traveling through Transylvania and rock up at this castle which is chock full of a whole legion of vampires um, rather than just like one that, that everyone in the castle is a vampire but the interesting thing is um, the end of that it isn't just a big staking fest um, the Van Helsing analog character he uses magic to defeat them and he summons a horde of bats to feed oh. on the vampires <laughs> that's very similar isn't it yeah yeah <laughs> Bats defeat no. vampires. It's almost yeah. It's almost homeopathic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of homeopathic, um, uh, it, it seems like there's a lot of sex symbolism going on in here too, and I I don't normally notice. I mean, obviously there's there's a a bit of um, stuff like that going on in all the covers for Weird Tales, you know that. Yeah, they were always picking the. If if this if the if there's a woman whipping another woman, then that gets on the cover in the story, <laughs> right? Um, it seems to be a selling feature, I guess. But, um, just like in looking at different adaptations, the the female love interest really serves no purpose um, if she isn't a female, and if uh, Solomon Kane isn't. Uh, I don't know, a repressed Puritan heterosexual. She doesn't ser- serve a purpose in the story. No, she's just she's... a damsel to be rescued, really. Yeah. 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 Which is a very Howardian, I think. You know, he, he just like, you know, we've got to have this to... I mean, it's why I, it's so fun. It's just a fun story, I guess, is, is, is when it comes down to it. But... There was some other stuff that's sort of like interesting, like the way they at the beginning of the first chapter, the voodoo, it's called in this book anyways, Nalanga and and Kane are sitting around a fire while 
um, Kane talks about his obsession with the jungle and having to come back and go into her. Um, and Nalanga is busy talking about his juju magic, which Nalanga is, I love Nalanga because all he does is talk about how powerful he is all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you like my fetish work? You, you believe in it? <laughs> it's, it's like just ending every sentence with juju powerful magic me. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty, he, he's just a fun character in that sense. And, you know, he never uses Solomon Kane's name. He never says, hey, Solomon, or hey, Kane." He always calls him Blood Brother. Mm, that's true. Um, and, and then he gives him a big stick. <laughs> and he says, go out into the, into the jungle. She, she's calling you. It's like, okay, there's a little bit of sexual <laughs> symbolism there, I guess. And, it, and then, you know, it, it's like wood. All the guys are made out of wood. And then when those two guys in the cave, they attack him, they're like, it's it's almost like uh, a rape or almost like a uh, it's it's very homoerotic if if you've been primed by the word fetish. I don't know. That was what I was thinking. It's it's very. I guess Howard wouldn't have thought that this is normal, but that wasn't his plan. But what do you guys did you guys have, get that feeling about it? I didn't see that at all. That went right oh, okay. over my head. Um, but I know. You know, I just read um, a biography on Howard, uh, Blood and Thunder by Mark Finn, and it, there was some um, some stuff in there saying that he was trying to throw some things in here and there to appeal to a certain sort of reader of weird tales. So, mm. you know, it, it could be that he consciously or subconsciously did that. I, I just I, I think it's compelling that he, you know, the, the jungle is a female. Uh-huh. And then... And then he's given a big stick, and then he's out in the woods. He finds a female, um, and then he rejects her. And then he says, um, "Go get your lover." Okay. And and then her the girl says, um, "You mean Cran?" He says, "I don't care what his name is. <laughs> <laughs> Just go get him." <laughs> what do you need us for? I need you to lie down in this cave together. <laughs> okay. Wow. He's a god. What can you say? Cain the panderer, you know. Yeah, I mean, it it is kind of... It's it's like Howard said, well, I could go to that village, right? But um, I don't really need to go to the village. And the village really doesn't exist in the story. It's just a word, right? We never go there. Mm. So this village that he's defending, in the same way that I think he does in in Wings of the Night, where he actually goes to that village... Um, it's a community there. In this case, it's just the girl and what she says, uh, you know, about her mom. That's the only people we know exist in this village. No, so. I, I think you're right about the sexuality of it. I mean, the the jungle. I mean, that draws on you know, long, long history of of Western thinking about the uh, imperial or colonial territories as female mm. to be conquered. But also, there's just there's a lot of you know, if you, if you look at a few centuries of vampire literature, they really oscillate between the the sexual and then the simply homicidal. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. Stephen King had this great slam on uh, Twilight, uh, which is really worth reading. It's only one page, but he said, um, "Honey, they're not romantic. Vampires are killers." Um, and I think he's I think he's half right and half wrong. You know, the, mm-hmm. the vampires in uh, Salem's Lot are they're not attractive. They're they're horrible. 
or you think about um, Nosferatu. I mean, it's a very, very scary, animalistic-like one. But then we've got the long tradition of, of sex vampires. And so when you have lines like, uh, let's see, um, one long arm slid under Kane's shoulders. The other gripped his hair. The Englishman felt his wrist, his head being forced back irresistibly. Mm-hmm. He clutched it. This is steamy stuff. Man. Yeah, it's it's and like I was I was reading it and then I was I I look at the adaptation. And I'm thinking, well, in one sense, it, it's like he's being the woman here is is you know hugging his knees and it's it's almost like a uh, she's in a submissive pose. And I like also that Kane is very. We, we're told by Howard that Kane is doesn't analyze himself. Right, he doesn't know what his motives are. But if if he had if he did analyze his motives, he'd just call it all the devil. Right? <laughs> so all these lustful urges he has for people or jungles or whatever, it's all the devil. Right. Uh, but it's that sin, and I think you know it, it can be both. Death is both attractive to people. I mean, that's why people commit suicide, and also fearful. People are afraid of it, and. And vampires are a symbol for death. That's true. That's true. They're also they're also parasites, and that seems yeah. to be kind of sub. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but kind of subtext of uh, in the story that the king is helping make this part of Africa a better place by getting rid of a a, a parasite that is fastened onto it. Yeah, the 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 backstory for why there is a city full of vampires is that a long time ago there was a uh, war between the city of the the silent city of stone and another group, and as their forces were depleted in the war, a wizard used uh, powerful juju to uh, bring back the dead so that they could keep fighting, and eventually they they ran out of soldiers. Which I think, uh, you know, in the hands of another writer, not in the hands of Howard, but in the hands of another writer, that would be a fascinating, like, metaphor for stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Howard doesn't do metaphors very well, I don't think. He's not really about metaphors, he's about visuals. But it it would be a very fascinating, you know, if we told that story in a book today, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we could think of lots of of ways of, of extracting value from that. Uh, but yeah, I think he just came up with a cool idea. He said, "Cool, Silent City of Stone." It was a cool idea. Yeah, Jim, what what are your thoughts? Um, well, I think there is definitely this sexual element because, I mean, at the time, alongside weird tales, Howard was also writing um, spicy fiction for some of the other pulps, mm-hmm. and Africa was the great kind of, um, shall we say, exotic setting. <laughs> The idea of this a primitive land, um, uncivilized, where you are unchecked and free. Um, and I think say, eroticism and vampirism does go hand in hand, and I think it always has um, flip flops between, say, the homicidal and the erotic. And you get a strange bit of both in this, which makes it interesting. Um, but for me, the fact that it is, it's um, it's not your typical. Uh, Transylvanian vampires, which you can trace back to Stoker and Polidori, it's um, a very different sort of take on it. Um, it's kind of like a pre-Hollywood take on the vampire, mm-hmm. one that's kind of largely been forgotten because from Bela Lugosi onwards, you, you know, old vampires generally are cut from the Dracula cloth. Yeah, this is much more I Am Legend 
style vampire. I mean, it's it, in essence zombies, right? Yeah. Is, is another way of looking at mm. it. Yeah, I kept thinking uh, of these as zombies as I was reading it. There was a very great um, scene, I think, with the two guys who come as you know guests to the cave. I guess they're not guys. The two vampires <laughs> who come to the cave, and and he's like, sit by the fire, and they're like. They say nothing, right? They just, and then uh, the girl comes, she screams, and then they pounce on him. And they were supposedly waiting for the fire, the ember to break down. And I just think Howard is very good at setting up great visuals. I mean, when you see this, you can see it in your head. It's it's not about the metaphor; it's about the color, right? It's all silent, silent color and and vivid uh, feeling. It's it's very. Um, Powerful, powerful scenes. I think. Yeah, he was great at painting a scene, and um, you can you can feel the the movement of the bodies, mm-hmm. you know, uh, through all the scenes and his in all his works because that's what he was about. He was a he was a very physical guy. Yeah. Now, usually, I'm not sure. Uh, Kane is is often done this way, but in Cull and in in Conan, usually the description of the hero is, you know, he's pantherish, he's tigerish, he's uh, he's he roars like a or he's roars like a lion or something, very cat based, right? We don't have that in 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 call, uh, sorry, in in Solomon Kane, but um, there is a a repeated, very interesting repeated symbol throughout the story. Um, do you guys catch it? No. Animal symbol? It's the snake. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. The snake uh, first appears, actually, I thought it first appeared uh, when it was crawling off that corpse, but actually it's in in the first chapter, I believe, there's a, uh, it might have been in reference to the river. And I'm assuming we're we're on the Congo here, it doesn't say, of course, um, Howard is, not particularly interested in geography, but <laughs> we're on the west coast of Africa. We know that we're in the Slave Coast, which is, I guess, near the Congo. I'm not exactly sure where the Slave Coast is. Um, and then he goes inland uh, through the jungle. I mean, that is when you think of African jungle, the Congo is what people think of. If even if that's only because of, uh, you know, British uh, fiction of Joseph Conrad. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I, I want to do that book, by the way. I think that uh, Heart of Darkness is a pretty fun book. Um, anyways, I think th- I think there's a reference to this snake, and then then we get the snake at the this first scene with the the corpse, and it's very interesting because let's see if I can find that spot where it talks about the corpse, um, because it doesn't it doesn't come back exactly but then it kind of does um see if i can spot it here hmm here it is at last pushing through the grass which rose about his shoulders he saw as through a corridor uh, as through a corridor walled with the rank waving blades a ghastly sight the corpse of a black man lay face down and as the englishman looked a great dark snake rose and slid away into the grass, moving so quickly that Cain was unable to decide its nature. And and then the next line, but it had a weird human-like suggestion about it. And 
Okay, and that's that's basically the end of what we get about this corpse and the snake. That completely so, confused me. Yeah, it is kind of baffling, right? So, because I'm in, like, is is the snake one of the vampires? What, exactly. what does that mean? And then uh, shortly later, he sees a vampire, um, a vampire, or well, we we get the intimation that there is a vampire being attacked by vultures, right? We can put that together later because mm-hmm. the vultures are attacking something in the grass ahead of him. Um, but in the comic book adaptation uh, in the Sword of Solomon Kane, they actually do make the jump and say that it is exactly what you were saying, Matt. It, it's a, um, it's a, they can transform into snakes, which I think makes no sense. <laughs> Why would they do that just for that, right? I suppose the idea is the actual evil spirit that animates the body departing, yeah. having been that's, expelled from its vessel. That's 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 also a possibility. But I was actually thinking that it might be um, that the corpse is not a vampire corpse because it doesn't say that it's been. It says it's. Here, I'll read the rest here. Cain stood over the body, noting that while the limbs lay awry as if broken, the flesh was not torn, as a lion or a leopard would have torn it. He glanced up from the whirring vultures and was amazed to see several of them skimming along close to the earth, following a waving of the grass, which marked the flight of the thing which had presumably slain the black man. Cain wondered what the thing, the carrion birds, which eat only the dead, were hunting through the grasslands, but Africa is full of never-explained mysteries. Yeah, so there's that line. That's the never-explained um, mystery. Right, the never-explained <laughs> mystery that we're going to try and solve here. Um, I, I was thinking maybe that the, the dead body is not a vampire. It's, it's just a regular person who had been attacked by a vampire and that the snake was, was the vampire, which doesn't make any sense. I, I, I don't know why you, he would do plot it, but it's not a good idea, I don't think. Well, if he'd followed up on it later, then it would have been okay, <laughs> but he didn't. He just let well, it lie there. Yeah, but there is snake imagery later on. When, yeah. when, the, when the fire uh, is consuming the city, it, it rolls like a snake through the grass. Right, and, and for a second, while I was listening to that, I, I must have missed something, and I thought that that was actually the same snake. I didn't realize it was a snake of fire. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's uh, the the way it works, right? Is it doesn't even have to make sense as long as you feel it. It's true. Yeah. These sort of very vivid, descriptive stories, but if it is if it is if it is not the vampires spirit or whatever it is escaping from the body but why is it escaping from the body i was thinking that because it says it has a human-like shape about it maybe it was like the vampire attacked this person and he was about to suck the soul out which is what they do and a lot of sucking by the way yeah back to what we were saying earlier oh yes uh, sucking the man out of the man right <laughs> wait a second this is getting too graphic here um <laughs> the the they suck the life out of people to live, um, and it's like, does that mean that that's the soul of somebody who was escaping? Like, it makes no sense to me. I'm just very, I want it to be solved. I want somebody to explain it. <laughs> it might just be said, just part of his thread of serpentine imagery, and um, mm-hmm. 
also it's kind of the idea you're in this jungle wilderness obviously having a, a serpent crawling off a corpse is um you know suggesting the serpent of the garden of even you know this is a an evil yeah. place and evil spirits um are roaming around yeah and of, of course um venomous snakes do um puncture you like a, i guess a vampire is supposed to i i guess way vampire bats do right well, yes, um, but the, actually, I think the vampire having that, this, the kind of snake-like canines is something that probably wasn't established until a bit later after this was um, written. Uh, it's like you know, Nosferatu, he has just two mm-hmm. big rat-like teeth <laughs> mm-hmm. rather than the sort of normal vampire canines, which I think sort of come into prominence in the 40s and 50s when the Hollywood makeup men worked up how to do it. <laughs> When when is Nos, Nosferatu? It's uh, a little bit before this. Twenty three. Okay, um, but yeah, that's um, it's interesting. Yeah, because because here, here we have vampires that are actually walking abroad in the daylight, um, because it was Nosferatu right. that introduced the idea that sunlight destroys them. That's right. Yeah, but Nosferatu came out before this story was written. Yes, but it's one of those. It's kind of. Nosferatu it was um, Stoker's estate suppressed it and had yep. all the copies nearly destroyed so it had been out of circulation and it was <clears throat> it became better known probably after this story was written yeah, hmm. yeah. Um, but it, after the universal horror boom had started and people horror films became a thing yeah in the 30s and you have to wonder if uh, a, a German art film would have made it to Texas well, that's true as well. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Yeah, there's a good possibility it didn't. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, there's. I think, you know, you can totally overanalyze uh, Howard because I don't think he works on a very intellectual level. I, I was listening to another podcast where they were talking about um, rogues in the house, and they brought up a piece of trivia that I would not known about it, that... He had apparently written it in one sitting while he had a terrible headache. And <laughs> when you start thinking about, oh, well, that makes sense. And he said, and I didn't change all any but one word. It's like, hmm, yeah, I can see why it run, that story works that way then. You know, if you're sitting in the typewriter with a terrible headache and you just rush through, you don't really, you know. I mean, he is a, he is a good writer. It's just not, he, his writing style is not subject to a lot of analysis, I don't think. It's fun. Yeah, I think we can, um, if we're going to do anything, we can look into his maybe his uh, subconscious uh, mind because I don't think he necessarily put everything in consciously, but it you know gives us some insight into what he was thinking. Well, I was just I, I just got a magazine from 1913 uh, yesterday, and I was looking through some other magazines of that era. And uh, you know what they're thinking about? Race. That's all they think about all day. Every <laughs> every magazine practically has a story sure. about racial typing, racial uh, classification. There, there was one I was looking at yesterday had, it was, uh, you know, a popular magazine, you know, popular American magazine, and it had like and a... And this a, was a, Ladies' a, Home Journal. It was some. It was. I think it was Cosmopolitan actually, which mm. you know now is a little bit more focused on ladies, uh, but then was a literary magazine, you know, popular literary magazine with photos and such, and it had 
it had a story about uh, the different a- uh, Aryan, not Aryan, was not the word, Caucasian women and their and their features. And it was like just a series of photographs and description of, you know, why they look like that. And we get that in this story, right? Nalonga is uh, a black African of the West Coast, very dark-skinned. And when we get the description of Zuna, I guess that's how her name's pronounced, and her boyfriend, or lover, um, they're described as uh, being lighter-skinned with a higher caste or something. I think maybe caste would maybe not the word. Um, narrower nose. Uh, the lips are not uh, offensive, I guess, to Solomon Cain or maybe Howard. I think Solomon Cain is not as racist as Howard is in this story, which is interesting. And then there's this, um, there's the, there's a mention of Berbers. He says maybe they're mixed in with Berbers or something. Yeah. And I didn't know who the Berbers were, although I'm familiar with their rugs, but I'm, I'm just I think they're Saharan. I'm uh, just I'm googling them now and they are uh light skinned. They're also pretty far away. Yeah, uh, Howard is not well known for his his geography, we know that. No, I, I thought the I think you're right about the racial subtyping here. Um Cran, whose name sounds a lot like Kane or looks a lot like Kane, he uh he's described as well proportioned. Mm-hmm. It's this it, it's it, it's an old, you know, way of saying, I don't know what to say, but, but he looks nice, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Handsome man. <laughs> but that's but it's not the hideous and dark, you know, that mm-hmm. you would expect. Um, so that's a little bit better. I, 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 don't, I, I don't think that we could, like, looking at this story, Solomon Cain is not particular. We don't get a good insight into what he's thinking most of the time. He says stuff. But he doesn't act that way. Like he'll say, "Like it's pure evil. You're Satan." Uh, but let's go on this adventure together. <laughs> I love it. When when Longa uh, uh, takes over uh, Cran's body, that's a great line. Where, I love that. Scene. You know, um, blood brother, you know me. Not you know me, eh? You are Satan," said Cain sincerely. <laughs> right. you know? And then, are you Cran or Longa? It doesn't matter. You're Satan. I mean, sincerely, you know, as as if you know. It's 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 how he greets the universe. Uh, uh, yeah, but uh, the thing about Solomon Cain is he's he's like the worst Puritan ever. Uh, he's not but, very pure, is he? But he <laughs> he he talks a good game, you know. Yeah, but but he falls right into this witchcraft stuff. Although he may complain about it, he is all for it. He's all for adventuring, you know. As as much as he says that. You know he's uh, an upright kind of guy. Um, he he's always looking for trouble, and <laughs> he's he's glad to use witchcraft, even though he's complaining about it. And that that goes through most of the stories, most of the mm-hmm. Solomon Kane stories. So is he? Is, I don't know the series as as well as you do. Is is Kane supposed to be more of a kind of extreme form of the uh, new model army going to war in Ireland and less uh, a Puritan stomping around London trying to make sure people don't put on those awful plays? <laughs> he, uh, you know, I he doesn't... Uh, there, there's never any scene that I know of where he's with another Puritan. He's always... 
he's always by himself and he's always adventuring. And I, I think there like was Sumerians never hang out together either. And that's true. Um, I think there was a poem uh, about Cain where he had come home and then he had to leave again because the the call of adventure was just pulling him away. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, as to the specifics of your question, I couldn't really say. Well, at one point in this story, we get the word crusader, and mm-hmm. and that seemed to, that seemed right to me. Although, of course, the the European Crusades predate the Puritans by a few centuries, but but that that kind of zeal for destroying the enemy that seemed uh, that seemed of the I'm trying to think of Howard looking at the Puritans that seemed and you know, he's not just thinking of the Puritans in Britain; he's probably thinking as well of the Puritans in uh, New England. Yeah, it's very Thanksgiving-y, this, this story. <laughs> Thanksgiving hat. A Thanksgiving right? story, that's right. Well, we're yeah. But this is, you know, this is the, the Puritans burning witches, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Puritans yeah. drive Roger Williams. Um, the, the thing about Cain is I always get the feeling that he's using the crusade against Satan as an excuse to go have some fun. I think Absolutely. I think he really wants to throw himself into as much trouble as he can, and he sort of he's got a death wish, really. <laughs> he kind of does, <laughs> and he uses the whole you know right hand of God thing as an excuse. Does he? I, I, does he ever have fun? Do we ever? No, <laughs> he, he never. Time on a cruise ship. He he's he, he. That's the one thing. That's the one thing. Unlike Conan, right? Who revels in. In women and wine, we're told, anyways. Right. Um, he never actually does that in the stories, but he always talks about doing it before or after. Or that's the purpose of the story, or something like that. Cain is 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 celibate, as far as we can see. I mean, this woman in the comic, she's prostrating herself in a very sexual way, and he's like, he's putting his head away so that you know he's like he's p- remaining pure. He's he's clean thoughts, clean thoughts sort of thing. <laughs> that's right. Um, but he does have this. I mean, he that's what the first chapter is about. He says, you know, I've come back to Africa over the salty seas or whatever it is, um, specifically to go out into the jungle. And Nolonga, um, while talking about how great and powerful his juju is, um, does talk about the jungle a bit, and it's. I, I think it's. It's one of the f- one wonderful things about Solomon Cain is it's his name helps so much, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, listen to this. Yonder in the unknown vastness, his long finger stabbed. By the way, he has finger bones around his neck, which I think is fun. His, his long finger stabbed at the black silent jungle, which brooded beyond the firelight. Yonder lie mystery and adventure and nameless terror. Once I dared the jungle. And he's referring back to the events of Red Shadows, I think. Mm. Once she nearly claimed my bones. Something entered into my blood. Something stole into my soul like a whisper of unnamed sin. The jungle. Dark and brooding over the leagues of the blue salt sea she has drawn me. And with the dawn I go to seek the heart of her. Mayhap I shall find a curious adventure. Mayhap my doom awaits me. But better death than the ceaseless and everlasting urge the fire that has burned in my veins with bitter longing. It's like he—he's like I really want to have sex, but I can't. So I'd, rather, I'd rather die. I'll go into the symbolic. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, better death than this urge. Yeah. And then uh, the the fire that burns his veins is bitter yeah. longing. 
It's it's uh, but his name is so. I mean, Solomon is the wisdom of Solomon, right? And then Cain, not the spelling, probably, right. but the sound the murderer. is the murderer, right? So mm-hmm. it's two biblical characters who are, you know, in, it's a it's what, what do they call that oxymoron, right? Mm-hmm. It's a a mix of of evil and good, or wisdom and and a rashness. It right. helps a lot. Yeah, it's it's very appropriate for the character. And I assume Solomon would be a name the Puritans would have given to each other, right? It's it's a kind of it's a bit referential for the Puritans. They also really enjoyed having more direct names, you know, like purity, chastity. Yes, yes. Um, there's a, there's a great uh, uh, parody from Ben Johnson um, where he has a Puritan called "Zeal upon the land busy." <laughs> but I think I, I think you're right. My daughter Virtue is up in her bedroom being very chaste mm. with her sister Chastity. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, um, Terry Pratchett has a mocks this in one of his Discworld books, and he has a, um, a puritanical family who don't quite understand the concept, and they have children called Bestiality. And <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Oh, that must be into corporal punishment. <laughs> No, I, I think I think you're right. The name the name says a lot. I mean, for me, thinking about this character, Solomon is always the the, the references of judgment. Um, and, yeah. And, mm. and you know the Puritans are doing. I mean, on the one hand, they believe strongly in individual judgment. I mean, they get that out of the uh, the raw edge of the, of the Protestant Reformation. You know, relying on individual conscience and reason rather than um, on a priesthood. Uh, it's, it's very much like uh, Mormonism. In it's the version of Mormonism in in the UK. They're very related in that way. In the United States they had this re- reaction against uh, you know the church church government. So every man is his own church, right? Every man can be the elder of his own church. His own family is his church. Mm-hmm. It's it's going back to the original book. Now in this case of Mormonism, they they've got the I'm going off on a Mormon tangent. Sorry. Uh, well, it was in the in the early Protestant um, sects. They had this yes. uh, concept of um, a congregation of all believers, and the idea yep. was you didn't need an appointed priest to mediate between you and God. Every man could do that for themselves. And uh, Solomon Cain seems to be a character who's took it upon himself to go around the world and fight evil, and that's well, that's his calling. <laughs> And he determines evil. I mean, he's not mm. a very interior character, but what we see no. is a mm. reflection of, you know, is this the right thing to do? Should I use magic? You know, right? Um, are they evil? Yeah. I take it a bit further than the earlier uh, Reformation, though. Uh, you know, you look at the English Civil War in the middle of the 1600s, mm. and you do get that splintering of sects, which, um, you know, levelers, diggers, ranters, mm. uh, even the clubmen, who uh, often push towards individual judgment, um, especially in uh, the height of the major civil war. Um, and of course, Cain, you know, this is, it, it's a nice, it's an interesting name because Cain is a criminal. I mean, Cain is the murderer who is banished. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, you know, the first ba- murderer. Indeed. And the fratricide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, you know, in Beowulf, we're told that uh, the monster is the descendant of Cain. You know, mm-hmm. this, this idea of this awful marginalized out well, land of nod or something right he went off to the land of nod right yeah or a different guy and he's got a big he's got a big mark on his head um there's actually as a sidebar there's a there's a really sweet note in the sandman comics where uh, satan is uh torturing cain and and uh 
he Cain shows him his the mark, which says you know you can't kill him, and Satan just thinks it's funny. Um, mm. But why you know, but to have the hero had the protagonist named Cain. Um, I guess in part it's to emphasize his murderous nature, um, the fact that the Puritans are not oh well, sometimes literally fratricidal, but you know focused on reforming and brutalizing their own society. But on top of that, the exile where Cain is always on the road. I mean, what's, what does he do at the end of the story when Longo says, where are you going next? He just points east, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got to go. It's a, it's a very American uh, character. You know, America, the country that invents the road movie, uh, you know, where we love to end stories with flight. Um, and so, you know, he's, he's uh, always on the road. He's always going to be moving on to some other country where he can find Satan and kill lots of people. <laughs> and he does say he just goes a little further into Africa and he finds a village full of harpies or something. Yeah. Well, there's another model possibly for Solomon Kane is an actual historical character who was around in the Civil War, Matthew Hopkins, the uh, self-appointed witch yes. the general. Absolutely. Um, and certainly the Kane's description is, you know, thin man in a slouch hat. It does look like he was inspired by the woodcuts of Hopkins who mm-hmm. did just go from village to village and... Um, find witches wherever he saw or wherever he felt like. Um, and render allegedly, allegedly, ironically, he met his end accused of witchcraft and uh, drowned as a witch himself. <laughs> <laughs> well, he ended up using this witchcraft, right? Just, just like Cain, you know? It's blowback. Yeah, well, that I think Solomon Cain says something like that in this story. He says, um, if... if uh, you're fighting, I want to say savagery, but it wasn't savagery. It was sorcery, maybe. You have to fight it with sorcery, he says, something like that. But he's, he's justifying the use of his stick. Um, and I guess that was um, uh, in that fight with the, the two the two tough guys, the two vampires in the cave. Those are they seem like a harder fight than than the later vampires. We're getting the sense he's being swarmed by hundreds of of these wood 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 armed men. They're like very strange metaphor though. Wood, they rot like wood if they don't suck human souls, and their muscles are like wood. Their bodies are like wood. I guess that explains the fire later on, but it's not a it's not a vamp, vampire trope as far as I can see. Although it does fit in with the stake, I guess. I don't I don't think he was too hung up on tropes here. No, I think you're right. I He's think he's doing just his said, own thing. Vampires cool. Yeah. Well, let's if, go with that. If it uh, if it if we accept the idea of magic versus magic, then having him use wood against wood echoes that pretty neatly. Yeah, it's probably coincidental, though. <laughs> it's my I, guessing. I, I wouldn't be so sure. Um, after all, <laughs> yeah, he's he has very strong wood, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> he it's does. lighter than iron, but very strong. And if, remember, there's, there's this little primal competition where uh, Longo gives him the rod and says, well, let's make lots of them. Longo goes, no, 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 no. We, there's only the one. Sorry. Well, <laughs> there's... There's not only that wood, but he does the majority of his fighting with the butt of his musket. That's right. Right, yeah, splinters. Oh, what a waste of a good musket. But yeah. Well, it's not a very useful weapon. <laughs> I don't when think you got, he fired it once, it. though. Yeah. And where the hell was his sword? Yeah, there's no sword in in I think in Red Nails he has a brace of of pistols, flintlocks or something. 
Right. So, and and Nalonga at the beginning mentions his long knife. Right. Yeah, it's, it, we don't get much of that. Um, there's a couple other things here. Um, palaver. I tried to look it up, and I, I every time I looked about it, Nalonga is always saying blood palaver. And then there is a, I think there's a chapter called Palaver. Um, palaver, palaver set. set. The last, the last palaver one, yeah. set. Okay, mm-hmm. so what is Palaver? I mean, when I look it up in the dictionary, it just says it's sort of idle chatter, idle talk. But he seems to me make it seem like something like a, a blood brother ceremony. And the only thing I can think of is the scene in Red Nails where they team up against the, the two bad guys there. Well, unless I remember rightly, it's actually is a. A very old term and um, like opposing forces if they held a truce they would meet and discuss terms and that would be right. a palaver right ah okay um, and um, S- Stephen King used it in the Gunslinger um, hmm. series of that in the culture of Roland the titular Gunslinger when there is you know people sit down to discuss serious matters and sort things out it's uh, called a palaver well, that's what the last chapters here is called, and that's where, I guess, we get the nice scene, and I think this is very cool. I mean, Nalong is a far more interesting character uh, than you would normally expect, and, and I think that's why this story does stand out better than Wings in the Night, and, and I think the other, I mean, Red Na- not, not Red Nails, Red Shadows is a, a very good story, I think. It's kind of rough, but it it's a very good story. This one, though, it has this this character who he says at one point, um, if I were to tell you how old I am, you wouldn't believe me. And then then after the you know, all the fuss is all the palavers done <laughs> or whatever, he <laughs> says, um, he says, I'll just read this part. He says, my blood brother. Um, discarding his pride in his pigeon English to drop into the river language understood by Cain. I am so old that you would call me a liar if I told you my age. All my life I've worked magic, sitting first at the feet of the mighty juju men of the south and the east. Then I was a slave to the Bakra. I don't know who that is, but it says the white man. And learn more. My brother, shall I span all these years in a moment? He's trying to explain how he does his magic. Um... And make you understand with a word what has taken me so long to learn? I could not even make you understand how these vampires have kept their bodies from decay by drinking the lives of men. And then he explains how it's like he's trying to say, look, you've got it wrong. I'm not evil. I'm not Satan. That's not how it works. But he doesn't quite do it that way. He says, he says, um, these things I know not. Uh, sorry, these things I know and am a part of, but how shall I tell you them, blood brother? You are a mighty warrior, but in the ways of magic you are as a little lost child. Oh, sorry, little child lost. And what has taken me a long, dark year to know, I may not divulge to you so that you would understand. My friend, you think only of bad spirits, but we, my, were my magic always bad, should I not take this fine young body in the place of the old wrinkled one and keep it? But Cran should have his body back safely, and then he leaves Cran's body. And it's it's true, like he's not evil, right? Because he could steal this guy's body, and maybe that's he's done that in the past. That's why he can live so long. 
But when we meet him before, he's old. Now we meet him again. He's old. He's older. Um, he's he's an interesting character because if you have the ability to, you know, put on another person's body like uh, clothing, he describes it. That'd be a great temptation. And yeah. yet he doesn't. Right. And and well, for all we know, he might have done it in the past and then changed his ways. Right. Right. And. I, I I just think he's a fascinating character, and because he's always so, he seems like very defensive about his magic. You wouldn't you say, why is he so defensive? <laughs> well, you know, like, Kane's I'm always bad, down on him. <laughs> well, Kane's coming from this uh, puritanical sort of Westerns kind of theological view of that there is good and there is evil in the world. Mm-hmm. Whereas no longer in his last speech, he's presenting you know, kind of a hint that it's, it's more of a shamanic thing. He talks about, you know, his spirit goes out over the jungle into the rivers to talk with the sleeping spirits of my friends. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's his magic isn't based on a duality of good and evil. It's, um, it's something, you know, it's a, it, magic is a neutral force. It's part of nature, and he uses it as to his conscience. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's not ma- given by the god, it's not given by the devil, it's there, he can use it because he's studied it and he understands it, and how he uses it is his decision. It's part of why I like uh, Kane is, is, that, is that when Howard writes Kane, we can see Howard doesn't agree with Kane's philosophy exactly, but we don't agree with Howard's philosophy either. And so that double layering of, you know, sort of, not disagreement, but uh, sort of not fellow feeling in the, in the, you know, we're, we're in simpatico on this idea is, is a little more interesting. Conan doesn't have a philosophy other than let's live life to the leaves, right? It's just like, let's, let's, let's be awesome. And, (laughs) (laughs) but Kane is, he's got, he's got this unanalyzable, you know, he, he wouldn't analyze it that way, says Howard. He wouldn't, he wouldn't. And if he did, he'd just call it the devil. Very simple sort of character. Yeah, a very exterior character. Yeah, focused not on the internal motivation, but I mean, we do. He does say what he's 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 there to do, and he says, "I don't really know what I'm doing." <laughs> I'll go. I'll go back. I think I think Jim has the the perfect comparison. Um, and you're thinking about uh, the Witchfinder General, is the sense of endless. Inquisition, you know, endless uh, crusade, endless quest to find something more, and that's that's the whole of the character, and that's um, that can never really end. I mean, there's, you know, the first time I read this, there's the description of the burning city uh, as hell on earth, Uh, Mm. and you know, looking at now, it really does give me that 1650s vibe. Cain gazed, awed. This was truly a hell on earth. I mean that doesn't that doesn't seem like idle language. You know, it seems like he has wrought a religious achievement. Mm-hmm. You know, he has brought hell to the to the hellish, and this does, of course, make him see it with awe. There's a very strange word at the end of that scene with the with the burning, um, and it says something like the, there's one voice, one vampire voice going up. Yeah. And I was thinking, was that mean every every vampire is sort of screaming out at the same time? Well, I felt there, that's there was a um, a Lovecraftian 
nudge there. There's, the flames leaped a hundred feet into the air, and suddenly above their roar sounded one bestial, inhuman scream, like a shriek from across nameless gulfs of cosmic space. Mm. I mean, uh, as one vampire dying broke the chains of silence which had held them for untold centuries. Yeah, that, that one vampire was yeah. the snake. Well, it's it's funny, right? Because <laughs> right before that, we get like a crimson serpent. The fire ran through the high dead grass. Yeah, and that's the line that Matt you said you you're is that that same snake, yeah, right? Right. I think you're supposed to think that. I, he he is a skilled writer. It's not like he's just. I think he worked on this a little more than you know the one hour he had the headache. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it feels like it feels like he's. Uh, he's maybe it's all inst- maybe he's just a really instinctual writer. I, when you when you read some people, you know, I think it's the greatest way to get access into people's minds is to read good fiction. You know, you can sort of see what they're thinking because they they show you they show you all the different ways. And he seems like he, he has a feeling. He has a bunch of ideas, and he sits down, and they flow together and. He he does come back to these themes. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. You know, I'm a fiction writer, and mm-hmm. I know that I have written many stories where I read something into them well after they've been completed. Right. And, and other people have told me about things that I didn't even notice that looked like I totally planned. Mm-hmm. So things can come up. Yeah, it's because you know you don't have full access to your mind. You have access to some part of your consciousness, mm-hmm. but the motivations that drive you are not all on your surface at all times. And you know, it's like you know, say Jesse, why are you so grumpy? I'm not grumpy. <laughs> well, oh, apparently I am. Someone else was better able to see what was clearly going on with me. Than me, there's 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 your there's the psychological depth, and there's also the depth of using language as a tool. Where it, exactly, especially but, in a, a language like English, which has this, which is a very very unusually large vocabulary, which has that <laughs> weird dual uh, lineage of uh, German Germanic language mixed up with Latin and, and French, and then the, our the richness of cultural reference, which is so large it's like the you know one of the Beatles got sued for copyright infringement and lost in court uh, I think it was George Harrison yeah um, and uh, oh from, my sweet lord right yeah. and his defense he had this lame but beautiful defense where he said you know I hear so much music I, I've probably heard this but you know I, I'm just immersed in all this stuff I, mm-hmm. I, I, and it was like what two bars of the song Right? It really I don't know about that. It sounded pretty similar all through. It was he's yeah. so fine. He's so fun. Yeah. yeah. But you know, you you wonder. Convergent evolution in in nature, and there is in fiction too. I, I I think I've read stories where you know there's people who were writing very similar things who absolutely did not have contact. You know, yeah. we see it now, but those two things, it, this the, the parallels come up again and again, and it it's. It, it, with a short piece of music, you know, the, it's very easy to to say, look, look how similar they are. But the longer the work is, you know, the 
more dissimilarities there will be, I would guess. Well, there's also different layers of, of how you get at this. I mean, does, does Howard come up with an idea because he read a poem from Clark Ashton Smith, and mm-hmm. Smith got this because he was reading Baudelaire, and Howard wasn't really reading Baudelaire, but now he gets it refracted through Smith. Mm-hmm. You, know, you hear music, do you hear the original? Do you hear it in a Hollywood version? I, I do want to come back to the, that, that paragraph about the end of the vampires, though, if I could. Because mm-hmm. um, it's one of the things that just always... I, I think the term Cain is a really good one, because there's a real terrible nature to this. Listen to the end of that. High and haunting, the cry rose, the death cry of the vanishing race. He's just committed genocide. Yeah. And if, you know, going back to what you said, Jesse, about the uh, 1910, 1913 magazine, you know, the, the clear mm-hmm. consciousness of race, you can't, you can't use race in an innocent, gentle way here. Um, you know, he's just wiped these guys out. And it's a good thing. Um, he's audited. The next, the, skipping a paragraph... Cain gazed hungrily at the clean blue sky, like a strong sea wind clearing a fog of horror was the sight to him. From somewhere sounded the faint and far-off roaring of a distant lion. I mean, lovely. He gazed hungrily at this, this incredible mm-hmm. visceral desire to cleanse. Again, you, know, you go back to the, the death-dealing Puritans, like, you know, like the Witchfinder General, and, and here, this is, this is a good thing. What a, what a terrifying... And you know what a mm. um, that's it's and there's not, not even a not even a justification like well you know we kind of had to kill them all because otherwise the virus would reproduce you know no it, they don't seem to reproduce that way right it's it's just their that's the way that these vampires have to live right well, or or never again <laughs> this is the end. Although, I think Nalanga makes the point, he says, the reason I gave you this staff in the first place is you don't just find these guys uh, in this city. They're also in the jungle, <laughs> right? It's, it, this particular race of vampires is is killed, but they're, they're also vampires everywhere, <laughs> right? Oh, so, oh, oh I, I thought it was uh, um, uh, Ryan to pay attention to the country, not just the city, like the... Uh, uh, well, I, I think, you know, you're, you're right to point out the ideas about race being so... I mean, I was trying to ex- explain last night why a book that we did as a podcast was never put out as a podcast. And I was saying, because if you don't, if you don't accept the premise, then everybody in the book is an evil fucking bastard. And that makes the author a pro- progenitor of evil. And the book is evil then. Mm. Is what I'm saying, which sounds like I'm a Puritan now, right? But uh, <laughs> this book that I was talking about, it has a premise that says this is possible. And if this is possible, then all regular humans, it's, like, it's basically like the X-Men, right? In the, the problem of the X-Men is uh, if they are literally superior to humans, homo superior, then we are uh, disposable by at least some of the group, whereas the other group, the X-Men heroes are they want us to live together or whatever. Um, but that's a very old-fashioned idea of race. It's the same idea that Howard had and Lovecraft and, and you know, the people of that era where they thought there, there was tears. And it's, it's even in this story where there's a, you know, there's the black people on the West Coast who are lower than the, the, these people in the interior. Mm-hmm. And obviously not as high as the quote-unquote white god of Solomon Cain. I like yeah. that Solomon Cain's not the racist here. It's it's Howard who's the racist. <laughs> but, 
but that that tearing uh, is absolutely evil, right? Because it it's not true, and it makes people act as if it is true. Because if you believe it, then you say, well, then it's justified. Genocide is justified because um, they're not inf- they're not superior, you know, they're not high enough. So they're going to die, and eventually we might as well kill them off. <laughs> that that logic is is there, and in this other story. Uh, because the premise is not believable, because it's 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 in the same way that you know it, <laughs> humans uh, who like us are just people and not of different races. There's no real such thing as race. It's just you know cultural. It's ethnicity. It's not a genetic. You know you're in this race or you're in that race or whatever. It's it's very cultural. If it's not a science thing, then we've got this problem where we feel um, it's, we're justified in, in treating pe- people badly. And, and I think it's, 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 it, this story doesn't feel as racist as that other one, which is a modern-day book to me. And it, it's because Howard just assumes these things very naively, like everyone at the time, I think. And he doesn't he doesn't put it all together in the same way that you know Hitler does or something like that. No, does that make sense? Yeah, it it reminds me of the um, of the King in Yellow. No, I was just thinking of the, the beginning of it when um, there's this bizarre utopian pan which is terrifying. I mean, I remember reading this and I thought I had the wrong book and I picked it up because of Lovecraft and then it's um you know the year it's the end of the year 1920 and. Uh, everything was in really good shape. Um, you know, all these good things have happened, and then there's been a final solution to the uh, Indian problem. Oh, God. Um, we've ex- let's see, we've uh, ex- the exclusion of foreign-born Jews is a measure of self-preservation. Oh my God! The settlement of the new independent Negro state of Suwanee, checking immigration, the new laws concerning naturalization, and the gradual centralization of power in the executive. All contribute to national prosperity. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> well, when the government solved the Indian problem, um, I mean, it's it's just it's just terrifying. And and uh, I mean, it feels like an alter. It is an alternate history. I mean, um, it's also when they have a they have you know suicide becomes publicly acceptable. Amazing. Um, <laughs> wow. But this is you know how. How would this be read at the time? How often would this be seen as that kind of terrifying uh, racial uh, nightmare? That, that's that's not dystopian, is it? That's utopian at the time. People thinking <laughs> oh, things can be better. That's what's scary. I mean, that whole that yeah. opening passage is all um, uh, in a utopian strain. You know, we've fixed these problems. It's progress. Yeah. We've made a. Um, now the government's finally strong. That's right. That was the problem all along. We didn't have a strong government. And nicely, they, it says this is the uh, this is the inheritance of of Woodrow Wilson, which does make sense to me because the guy was a racist. I I have one more thing. Um, did anybody see the Boing Boing article about zombies versus animals? Oh uh, yes, no. yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and I I looked through it. I looked through it to see if there was any mention of Howard. I didn't see anything, but of course I immediately thought of that. Huh. This is how, if if zombies actually existed, the wildlife, the carrion eaters would tear them apart, and we wouldn't right. really have anything to worry about. 
This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.